Howdy, Biltmore Church. Pastor Joe B. Martin here, and I would like to say greetings all the way from Jacksonville, Florida. And it is good to be with you, although I wish I was with you with you uh, last year when you invited myself and my wife Gretchen to come to Asheville. We were talking about it this week. It literally was one of the best weeks we've ever had in our entire life. We've been married for 20 years, and we love that area. We love your church. We, we celebrate what God is doing in you and through you and to you. And we also love your pastor. I love Pastor, pastor Bruce. He is um, he's an incredible man of God. He, he loves his wife. He loves his family. And he loves some golf. I met him on the golf course at a Tim Tebow uh, fundraiser thing a bunch of years ago. And when I saw him hit the ball, I wanted to be like him. And so uh, I like him and I love the fact that we have gotten to be friends and I know that sometimes, just like you may take for granted the crisp, cool fall mornings that you have there right now that we have yet to experience here in Jacksonville, you may take for granted your pastor. And so let me just remind you of what an incredible blessing that you have in the man that God has sent you. In fact, right now, um, even during this message, you should probably send him an email just to encourage him and tell him what a great job he is doing. Uh, we are several weeks into this series right now called This Must Be Greater Than That. And as you've heard several times, <clears throat> it comes from that phrase, comes from a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, when the Third Reich in Germany was rising to power, then Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this pastor that, that felt ultimately like he was powerless as compared to what this world was doing in Germany, he started this seminary with, with rigorous Bible teaching and training, and a bunch of people thought it was too hard, it was too difficult, and, and a friend came to visit the seminary, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer is walking up this mountain, and on top of the mountain, he could look over and he could see, he could see the Nazi army training, and very famously he says this, talking about his seminary, this little work of God that he had started there to train up men and women to bring truth, to bring light to a dark world. He says, this must be greater than that. And I don't think he was just talking about the school that he started. He basically was saying that this, God's way, must be better than, must be greater than what this world has to offer. And every single week, you have been going through God's way versus what the world has to offer. And in our time together today, I want to talk about repentance must be better than rebellion and judgment. That repentance must be better than rebellion and judgment. If you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, go to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 contains one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever tells. And, and even if you're brand new to Bible study, you've probably heard of this one before. It's called, a, it's called the parable of the prodigal son. But in order to understand the context of what Jesus is teaching about, we've got to pick it up in verse 1. And Jesus, or the Bible says this, Luke says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled and said, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So you got to understand the context in which Jesus shares this very famous parable. There are sinners and tax collectors. These were the rebels. These were people that have rejected God and say, I do what I want with who I want when I want. And when we as Americans, when we hear the word tax collector, this doesn't just mean that, um, that, that, the, that the Jewish people 
didn't like them because they charged a little extra money. These were men, these were men <coughs> Jewish men, who had sold out their brothers and sisters to extort them to fund a terrorist nation that would oppress them. That's what tax collectors were. They were hated. And, and, and when it says sinner, it doesn't just mean like you're a sinner and I'm a sinner and we're all sinners. This was a special class of sinners. Mostly it had to do with sexual sin. This would be like prostitutes, harlots, that kind of thing. And everybody, everybody, particularly the religious, looked down on these people. And then right beside those people are the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious people, the, the Sunday school teachers, the pastors, the deacons. The religious people. Now, what's crazy about this whole thing is, is that when Jesus was walking around teaching and preaching, people that were not like him at all liked him a lot. And maybe the reason that they liked him is because they sensed or they knew that he loved them. And so, as the religious people are grumbling and say things like, this man receives sinners and eats with them, then Jesus decides to tell three parables back to back to back. The parable of, of the lost sheep, where, he, where the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Maybe you've heard of that one. And then right on the heels of that, he, he shares a parable, the parable of the lost coin, where a woman has 10 coins and she loses one and she turns over her entire house to find the one coin. And then he shares what we call the parable of the lost son or the parable of a prodigal son. Now, I think it's a bad name. Because what we're going to find out when we dig into it is there's not just one lost son, there's two lost sons. That one son is lost in his rebellion and another son is lost in his religion. And there's one lavish father that loves them both. So if you skip down to verse 11, this is where Jesus begins the parable. And he says this, and Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he, the dad, divided his property between them. Now, right out of the gate, this is how you know it's a Jesus story. Because this younger son comes to his dad and says, give me my inheritance. Give me what's coming to me. Now, when do you typically get an inheritance? You typically get an inheritance when your dad dies. And ultimately, what this younger son, in his own rebellion, is saying to his father, Father, you are dead to me. I'd rather have your stuff than a relationship with you. And the dad gives him what he's asking for. Now, <clears throat> I don't know how you grew up, but where I grew up in the low country of South Carolina, if I were to come to my dad and say, Daddy, you're dead to me. Won't you give me what's coming to me? He said, boy, I'm about to show you what's coming to you. That's how it would have gone in my house. It would have been a very short parable. That would be it, okay? But here... The father gives to both boys all that is coming to them. One of the things that you have to see is this, is all that both sons had belongs to the father. That everything that we have is a blood-bought grace gift from above. And ultimately what happens here is the son chooses, the younger son chooses entitlement over gratitude. He, he could have been grateful to, to live at his dad's estate, to, to have a roof over his head and food to eat, and ultimately have a relationship with the father. But instead, he, he, he was entitled and thought, I deserve. I deserve what's coming to me. You see, every single one of us live on a continuum between entitlement and gratitude. And the younger son rejects his father for his own rebellion and self-discovery via self-indulgence. Now, here's what's crazy. And the father knows this. And the father allows this. 
And the Father even funds this. How in the world can you explain why this dad would do this when he knows where this will lead? But ultimately, ultimately, the dad wants a relationship with his son, not begrudging submission. And command and control never breeds relationship. Love and grace does. And so he lets his son make a decision. However, the father does not keep him from the consequences of his decision. And he gives him all that's coming to him. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there, there he squandered his property on reckless living. The King James says he squandered his property on prodigal living. This is where the name of the parable comes from. You see, you see, here's the thing. Here's the thing about our lives. Our lives are not a snapshot. It's a journey. That, that every decision we make leads to a destination. And where, where this kid started felt fun. Because rebellion, at first, always feels like fun. Always feels like freedom. But it can only lead to bondage or death, and we know this to be true. You see, sin is fun for a season. I can remember being in my Southern Baptist church in, in uh, high school, and I can remember the preacher talking about how, how awful sin was, and that sin, what this world had to offer was not fun, and sin is not fun, and sin is awful. And I remember thinking, you're not doing it right. If you would hang out with me for like one weekend, I could show you so many things. But what he was saying was ultimately true. Rebellion, when we get out from under the authority of God, it feels like fun and freedom at first, but it can only lead to sin and bondage. We know this. Any, single, any, any one of us who are in financial freedom, it's because at first we thought more was mine and we began to spend money we didn't have on stuff we didn't need. And then eventually you look around, you look around and, and you are, you are a debtor, you're a slave to the lender. For anybody that struggles with alcoholism, and you have burned your life down over a substance, what happened is a long time ago, you started having a few drinks, and then you thought, I got this, and then one day, you don't got this, it got you. Or for anybody, and there was infidelity in your marriage, and it led to divorce, it's because way back here, somebody started flirting with somebody that was not their wife, or was not their husband, and when it began to go a little too far, you thought, I got this, and then one day, you don't got this. Nobody ever wakes up in the morning thinking, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a divorce and have a custody battle for my kids. That's not how it goes. We begin to say, forget you, God. I've got this. This is what the boy does. This is what the boy does. And you see, he's going to go on a journey where he wants to find himself by indulging himself. And when you do that, at the end of the journey, all you have left is yourself. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. You see, the lure always has a hook. The enticement always has a gotcha. And this isn't just kind of a, a bummer, blue-collar job. This is a, 
first century Orthodox Jewish boy, for him to be in contact with, fit, with pigs means that he would forever be unclean, he would, he would forever be isolated, he would not be allowed in temple or in the synagogue. This is the lowest of the low. And no one gave him anything. The Father will not enable our bad behavior. The Father will not continuously fund our reckless living. And ultimately, God is not a helicopter dad. He's not. Oftentimes, it's God's kindness to let us fall flat on our back, so our only opportunity is to look up to him. See, Romans chapter 1 says that it would be God's wrath to turn you over to your own desires, but it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Listen, Biltmore Church. There are some of you right now begin to dabbling in areas where the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy you, and, and, and God's greatest grace upon your life right now may be for you to get busted so that you will realize that all of our ways are busted. It, it, is, it is God's grace that this kid ends up bankrupt. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, <clears throat> he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? The NIV translates it this way, but when he came to his senses, you see, he begins to see that that his father is his only opportunity for help and that he cannot find help in and of himself. He did not say, what am I doing here? He said, I know that my father can help me. You see, the beginning of repentance is understanding that you are not your savior. The beginning of repentance is to understand that you have a father who loves you and he, he sent his son to rescue you. Verse 18, so he says, so I will arise and go to my father. This is what repentance is. Re to repent simply means to change direction. I was heading in my direction with my back towards God and my face towards the world. And to repent is to respond to the invitation of God and to simply change directions and set your face towards the Lord and your, your back to this world. And repentance is not just a one-time act for the person to get saved, that repentance according to Martin Luther, should be the activity of the Christian every single day of our lives. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He's practicing his apology. You ever been here before? Anybody been here before? Like back in the day, you knew you were going to get busted by your dad, and so on the way you're practicing your apology? And he knows if he sprinkles a little, like, you know, gospel language in there, he's like, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. You know, how can you be mad at me? This is what he's doing. But his apology is evident that he doesn't understand the gospel. You see, even in his bankrupt life, he still thinks he brings some merit to the situation. And what he's ultimately saying is, I'm not asking to be back as your son, but I can work just as hard as your other servants can work, and I bring some merit to this relationship, so let, hire me and let me pay you back, and I'll do that. You know, what's really ashamed is that most church people don't understand the gospel. And look, Biltmore, I know that, that you hear the gospel, you sit under the teaching of a good gospel preacher every single week, and yet, 
a recent Pew Research poll says that over 50% of professing Christians say that their good works plays a significant role in where they spend eternity. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You are not saved by works. Well, sort of. You are saved by works, just not your works. You're saved by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And we bring no merit to that relationship. Romans chapter 3 says it this way. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's not, let me clean myself up that I may be accepted by God. It is through the cross of Jesus Christ. He has already accepted you because of Christ's finished work. Therefore, we respond in right activity. This is identity before activity. You see, when we try to work for God to earn his blessing and approval, it reveals that we don't know God. You see, you and I, you and I are not primarily servants to a master. In Christ, you and I are primarily sons and daughters to a father. This is different. By the way, this is why we don't repent. We don't repent because we think, I got myself into this, I'll earn my way out of it. And yet, God's invitation is, why don't you just come back home to me? In verse 20, and he arose, this is the boy, he arose and he came to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He did five things. And Biltmore, please hear me. This is how God the Father feels about you feels about you a lot of times at church we can be afraid of our feelings and, and don't hear me wrong doctrine matters theology matters you can't rightly love God without right thoughts about God like if I were to go home and write a song and sing a song to my wife about her beautiful red hair she wouldn't love it because she has brown hair even if the song was amazing which it would be she would hear it and think I think you're singing about somebody else it would not go good for any of us so right doctrine matters, but what I need you to understand is that God the Father feels a certain way towards you. Look at the Father's response to the rebellious son when he repents and comes home. He does five things. One, he sees his son from a long ways off. This means that the Father has been looking for his rebellious son. I don't think it's just coincident that he's standing at the mailbox one day when the boy comes home. He's at the end of the driveway scanning the horizon and he sees him. And here's what I want to tell you. You may feel lonely. You may think you have sinned so bad that God doesn't want to have anything to do with you anymore. You are so, so wrong. God sees you. He sees you. He hears your prayer. And so he sees him from a long way off. And then it says he feels compassion. The Greek word is splogizomai. It means from the guts. Like when, like when God sees you, his son or daughter, a thing in God stirs up his heart's affection towards you. He feels this way. I mean, think about it. If you're a dad, how would you feel? Isn't this how you would feel? If your son ran off, if your daughter ran off, 
And then one day they came back home. He was, he's overwhelmed with emotion. He sees him. He feels a certain way. He has compassion on him. And then he ran to the boy. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in the first century, men of this kind of stature didn't run. That's why I don't run. Because if you ever see me running, call the police. Something has gone horribly wrong, either for me or the fellow I'm chasing. But the reason they didn't run in the first century, they'd wear these huge robes, and you'd have to hike up that robe and show a bunch of man thigh, and nobody needs to see that, not then and not today. But it was a humiliating thing. Like when you were the man of the house, people came to you. You didn't go after them. And so this father has no concern with what the people around him think about him and what he is willing to do for his son who was lost. And so he runs to his boy, and then it says he embraced him. He wraps his arms around him. Why? Well, there's a bunch of reasons. One, obviously, because he loves him. But also, when Jesus tells this story, this was a common first century story that was already in circulation. And the way the original story went, it was about an honor killing. That a boy came to his dad, took his inheritance, squandered it, and when he came home, the servants stoned the boy. And it was, a, it was an example of what an honor killing looks like. And what Jesus is doing, he's doing, he's doing like a Quentin Tarantino movie, and he's going to twist the end all around. And then when Jesus says, not in my kingdom, that's not how, not how the story ends. You see, in my kingdom, the father runs to the boy and wraps his arms around the boy. In case the servants start throwing rocks, you can't tell where the father begins and the boy ends. And maybe the father will take the stones for the boy. And then he kisses him. Don't miss this. He kisses him. Do you know the kiss of the father? I'm not talking about do you go to church a bunch and do you try to not do bad things and add some good things. That, that is not fundamentally what the gospel is about. Do you know the kiss, the kiss of the Father? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? I, I remember um, when my son, who's 14 now, I was, t- I was putting him in the car seat in the back of the truck, and I get him all buckled up, and I gave him a kiss. And my dad happened to be with me. My dad's sitting in the front seat, and I hop in the front seat, and I was like, Daddy, did you ever give me a kiss? And he said, in the mouth, just like that. No, no, boy. Listen, daddies, kiss your boys. My son's 14, so he's awesome, doesn't like anything. And uh, every morning, man, every evening, every time I, he leaves, every time I see him, I grab him by the head and just kiss him right, just right on the head. And he don't like it. He don't like anything. He's 14. One day he kind of did like this. I was like, look here, son, you pull away from me. I'll kiss you right in the lips. You understand me? And you can't stop it. A few years, you'll be able to stop it because we're doing this. But right now I got you. Because I want him to know his daddy loves him. Do you know the kiss of the father? Because this is what this dad does. He sees him from a long ways off. He feels compassion for him. He runs to him. He humiliates himself in front of everybody. He embraces him and he kisses him. (laughs) You see, when we know this is the kind of God we serve, of course we would repent because we don't run home to condemnation. We, hunt, we run home to the open arms of a loving Heavenly Father. Verse 21, And the Son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your Son. Verse 22, But notice the Father interrupts the apology. Remember earlier in the text, we know there's like another half to it, right? Where he, I'm going to get to work and, and you can trust me. And the dad is like, I don't even got time to hear this. But the Father said to his servants, And what the father is going to do now is he's going to lavish his love upon the son. 
If I ever get to be on a Bible translating committee, I would like to call this the prodigal dad, not the prodigal son. Tim Keller wrote a book called Prodigal God. You should read it. Because, because prodigal means without restraint. And what the dad is going to do now is without restraint. He is going to pour his love upon his son. And first thing he says is bring quickly the best robe. The best robe would have been his robe. Now, the Bible says that the boy comes to his senses in the pigsty. Nowhere in the scripture does it say he stopped by a Holiday Inn Express and got all cleaned up and then came to see his father. And so when the dad sees him in his filth as he returns home, even though his theology isn't perfect yet, the dad says, quickly bring my robe, the clean robe. This is a picture of imputed righteousness, not imparted righteousness. To impart means if you do your part, I'll do my part. That's not what we believe. We believe in imputed righteousness that God credits to us the perfect life of Christ. When you surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, not only are your sins forgiven, that's like only the first half of it, but also the perfect life of Christ is credited or counted or imputed to you. So that when the Father sees you, he sees the perfection of his Son, Jesus Christ. That when the crowd sees the boy, they don't see the pig slop. They see the cleanliness, the robe of the Father. This is why the Bible says that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made the righteousness of God, that God delights in you. And so he says, quick, bring the best robe. By the way, when he, when he imputes his righteousness upon you, now the pretending and the performing are over at the cross. He says, bring the robe and put it on him and, and put a ring on his hand. This was, this was a signet ring. He's giving him authority. You ever watch those cool like Braveheart movies where they roll up the scroll and they put that wax and they go with the signet ring? And it means, you know, only the king's people get to open this. What he is saying is now you are my son. Here, take my name. You can write checks now that I will fulfill. That's what he's saying. And put shoes on his feet. See, I don't know if you know this, but in the first century, only sons got shoes. The servants didn't get shoes. It's a picture of adoption. Verse 23, and then it gets to my favorite part. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. The dad says, we're about to party. And the way they are going to party is they are going to kill the fattened calf. Now, I just got to let you know this. In the new covenant, post-cross and resurrection, we get to party better than the old covenant guys got to party. And here's what I mean. If I'm throwing a party, I'm going bacon-wrapped filet medium rare. But in the Old Covenant, you can't do bacon and you can't eat blood. But in the New Testament, glory to God, I wish somebody would testify with me right here, gospel meat equals bacon-wrapped filet. That when Jesus died on the cross he, and he says, it is finished, that means we can eat bacon and we can get it medium rare. It means a lot more than that, but that was also included glory. Okay, so bacon-wrapped filet. This is why, by the way, I don't understand you vegetarians. I know there's a bunch of you in Asheville. Praise God. Love you. Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for you. I just don't know what vegetable declares this is celebratory. So, I, you know, there's only certain levels of celery, but this is a party with filet. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He is lost and is found, and they begin to celebrate. Now, <clears throat> most of the time when we teach this parable, it kind of stops right here. But, but remember, remember who's listening. So, so the, the sinners and the tax collectors are thinking about their dad right now. That's what they're thinking. They're thinking, wow, I don't think I would get treated that way if I went home. 
and Jesus is saying, because your heavenly father is a different kind of father. But then the religious people, they're thinking, well, that's not fair. And Jesus has a word for them too. Now, be careful, church people. I told this to my church. I'd say this to Biltmore. The longer you are in church, good gospel teaching church, but the longer you're in church and around church people, the more likely we are to become like the older brother and begin to look down our nose at other people. And you cannot simultaneously look down your nose at anybody else and keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Because what the dad is saying to the, bro- to the younger son is this is better than that. Repentance is better than rebellion. But the message continues. Now his older son was in the field. This is for the religious. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. You hear what kind of party this is? Of course you can hear music. How do you hear dancing? This isn't some little TikTok wiggle. This is like, I mean, they're getting after it, okay? They hear dancing. And so the older brother called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Let me tell you what what judgmentalism and religion will always do. Is that religious don't want to talk to the father. They just want to talk to the people that work for it. And religious people set it up. Whoa, 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 whoa. The father's busy right now. Why don't you tell me and I'll tell him? But that's not the way it works. That's not what the gospel te- teaches us. That when Jesus died on the cross and he says, it is finished, the curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. And so the, the, the people of God are invited into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. And so you and I, like a three-year-old walking into their mom or dad's room, get to boldly and confidently walk into the throne room of God and climb up on the king's lap who just happens to be our heavenly father. You see, that's better than religion. And so the older brother said, so so what does this mean? Verse 27, and he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. This is good news. This is good news. The servant is saying this, repentance is better than rebellion. But religious people always get ruffled up when grace transforms lives. And the older brother, he's angry. And he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. I want you to underline that word, entreated. His father came out and entreated him. You see, in the older brother, his selfishness and his self-righteousness, he rejects the party because of who the father is. Now, before you think about this as a Bible story, this has happened to you. This has happened to all of us. You've got your family together at Christmas or Thanksgiving or something like that. And one person in the family gets angry at another person in the family. Okay? Does that ever happen to anybody? Am I the only family that's dysfunctional? I don't think so, right? And so one of them is like, I hate that guy. And the meal is about to begin. Thanksgiving or Christmas, it's about to begin. And somebody's up in the bedroom. I'm not going in there. That guy's a jerk. And so who has to go? The dad typically has to go. Now think about this, dads. How do you go? I've, got, I've told you, I've got a 14-year-old. And if he was like this, and, and, and he was outside of the party, if he's standing outside and we're at Nana's house, and, and, the, and, the, and the ice and the tea is melting, right? And the fried chicken's getting cold, and he's standing outside, how would I go out there? My church doesn't even have to guess how I would go out there. I would go out with great consternation. You could see it on my face before I would be like, if you don't get in here, I, you know what I do for you? I would, that's how I would go. I know me. Not the father. That's not how the father goes. 
He doesn't. He doesn't come out like this. The Bible says he entreats him. That word in Greek means to beg, to plead. That once again, the second time now in one story, the father humiliates himself and humbles himself in sight of everybody for the sake of his son whom he loves. And, and he comes out and he's begging his son. He's like, what are you doing? What are you doing, buddy? This party is for you. Everything I have is yours. Your son, your brother, he, he was dead and, and now he's alive. Can you please put down the judgmentalism and receive the relationship? Because this party is better than this religious self-righteousness that you're standing in. Won't you come? Won't you come? And, and the fact that, that the older son doesn't come, it's because he doesn't know the party. He doesn't know the father. That the dad is entreating him. The dad is begging him. Which, by the way, one of the things that hits me about this text is how in the world are my kids ever going to believe God's not mad at them if I always am? Like when my kids screw up, do I come to them like the father or like the older brother? This isn't fair. How dare you? And he's, he's begging, won't you come in? Won't you come in? Built more church, I beg you. I beg you, please say yes to the party. Please say yes to the Father entreating you. Please, please, please don't be satisfied with a little bit of church attendance and some morality because a relationship with the Father is better than religion. Please don't miss the Father's invitation. And think about this. <clears throat> Jesus Christ would have us believe that the almighty sovereign king that spoke everything into existence that predestines, that foreknows, that calls, that justifies, that sanctifies, that glorifies, that he will get on his hands and knees and beg us, won't you please, won't you please, won't you please come home? This is the Father heart of God. And what's crazy is it's often easier for the rebel to get saved over the religious because, listen, man, when your life hits the pit, you usually realize it, look around and say, this ain't working. And somebody like some, some Christian offers Jesus and you'll say, I'll take whatever I can get. But the problem is, is when you don't know you're lost and you declare yourself righteous, by definition, that's self-righteous. But look what the boy does, the older son. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Look, that is not a covenant rooted in relationship. This is a contract of services. He does not call him father. He calls him commander. And he's saying, you owe me. Be careful, church people. In a second, we can get there. You get a bad diagnosis from the doctor and begin to think, God, you owe me. I'm in serving you. And you let my pagan brother-in-law be healthy and I get cancer. Explain that. Or, God, I've been faithful, I've been generous in my finances. Why am I having problems? But the, but the guy I work with that's an atheist, he's making money. Or you begin to think, I raised my child in the church, and they're the prodigal, they're running off, don't even want to talk to me anymore. You owe me. When we begin to think that way towards God, what we're doing, and it's not a covenant rooted in a relationship with the Father, it's a contract of services. And we begin to think, I did my part, God, you owe me. You see... Judgmentalism begins to puff us up. He says, the, the older son says, 
I have never disobeyed. Yeah, right. By definition, he is self-righteous. Verse 30, but when this son of yours, not brother of mine. You see, judgmentalism, religion, it always separates the family. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now notice, nowhere in the story so far has the word prostitutes specifically been mentioned. But here's what judgmentalism will do. Here's what religion will do. Religion will pick out one particular sin that the older brother does not deal with and draw a target on it and say, well, if you struggle with that one, you must not be a part of the family. And what the father is saying is, no, 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 no. This grace, this repentance is better than this begrudging submission that you're talking about. And then... The dad says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Now, this word here, son, is technon, and it's not the words that have been used previously in Luke 15 when the word son is used, because it doesn't just mean male descendant. It literally, it literally means like my little boy or, or child, and I don't think the dad's being condescending because he's entreating. He's begging. Now, again, think about this. If my son was outside of the house and we had the celebration going on inside of the house and I walked out and said, come on, man, won't you come in? And he talked back to me. How would I respond? But here's how the father responds. The father says, come on, buddy. My child, my son. Like I, man, I remember. I, don't you remember? I remember going to your ball games. I remember bringing you home from the hospital. We had hopes and dreams. I can remember a day when I would come home from the field and you would run up to me and throw your arms around me and we'd play Tonka trucks and we'd wrestle in the bed. Don't you remember that, my son? This is what he's saying. The dad's invitation is all rooted in that relationship. You are always with me. Notice this. With me. The cash and prizes, that, that, is just, that is secondary to the relationship with the Father. Not what he can do for you, but the fact that we get him. He says, my boy, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. In other words, the dad is saying, I did what I did for him and I'm doing what I am doing for you because of who I am. God is a good, good father. And he lavishes his love upon his children. You see, this is better than that. This, a relationship with the father through the sacrifice of the son, Jesus Christ, that is better. Than, it's better than rebellion. It's better than rejecting God and go at, going after everything this world has to offer because all this world has to offer is sickness and loneliness and isolation and brokenness. That's all this world has to offer. And this kind of relationship with the Father, it's just better. So if that's you, if you're on a journey that leads to a place that you know you don't want to go, then the best thing you can do right now is come to your senses, stop, repent. Come back to the Heavenly Father. And what you will come back to is not condemnation because therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus once you come home. But also this, religion, judgmentalism, it destroys, it puffs up, it divides, it leads us to a place where we declare ourselves righteous. 
And it is a miserable way to live. A miserable way to live. Come on, Biltmore, you know a whole bunch of church people and they seem miserable in their begrudging submission. And the reason is because they don't know the kiss of the Father and all they have is excuses instead of receiving the invitation of the Father to come into the party. You see, the, the parable of the prodigal son is really about a prodigal dad that lavished his love on both of his lost sons. One was lost to rebellion, one was lost to religion. One was lost to bad behavior, one was lost to good behavior. And both of them were invited to turn around and come to the Father. I hope and pray, I hope and pray by the power of the Spirit of God that you would come to your senses, that you would see God for who He really is. Almighty, sovereign King, for sure, no doubt, but that you would understand that the Son of the Son of God became a man so that men and women could become sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we love you more than anything. And Lord, I thank you, I thank you that you relentlessly pursue your rebellious and religious kids. God, we have all rejected you, and yet you sent Jesus to do for us what we could never do on our own. And God, I thank you that through the blood of Christ at the cross, when he says it is finished, then the performing and the pretending are over. And God, I pray at Biltmore Church right now as this message goes out that men and women, that students and children would experience the kiss of the Heavenly Father and would not just see the gospel as practical, but they would experience as beautiful and it would overwhelm them and that they would understand that the Father loves them, lavishes his love upon them. That for anyone who would believe, for anyone that would receive Christ, that we would be, we would be called the children of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.